0: Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm going to be your host this week. I'm David Grubbs. I'm a high school English teacher, and this is episode 329. Uh, If you missed us last week, we're back, and uh, better than ever, I'm not real sure. Better than ever, Nathan? Are we better than ever? Oh, I think we're better than ever. Okay, Nathan Gilmore, professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia
2: yes indeed and uh, i want to remind listeners real quick i won't be as lengthy as i was last episode that uh if you want to hang out uh in chapel hill north carolina uh the weekend of october i think 14th 15th and 16th you can go to the website theologybeer.camp and you can get a 50 dollar discount for your weekend ticket with the promo code humanist uh there's going to be all kinds of people there uh people that i have uh Feuded with online in the past. So, I mean, it promises to be interesting. And frankly, uh, I like to meet our listeners. I've, uh, I've met a handful of you all over the years, uh, both at theology beer camp events and in other contexts. And I always enjoy it. So uh, if you uh, have an occasion and you have an impulse to uh, head out to North Carolina, October, 14, 15, and 16 theologybeer dot Camp discount code
0: humanists. Cool. Also with us is Michael Farmer, a high school history teacher, if I remember correct. Is that, is that right, sir?
1: You do remember correctly. And as long as Nathan is plugging his appearances, I want to remind everyone I am speaking at the Catholic Imagination Conference, September 30th and October 1st. That's it. The University of Dallas. Uh, I would just Google Catholic Imagination Conference and I'm sure you'll get the information.
0: Well, uh, and dear listeners, I'll let you know that I won't be anywhere in particular because I continue to be as elusive as a Sasquatch. Nice. So, David
1: Grubbs will be appearing in his own living room
0: <laughs> as as himself <laughs> uh, before a live studio audience of his children,
1: his many children. <laughs>
0: Before we get into this week's subject, which is the Book of Tobit, do we, have we got any other housekeeping, theology beer camp, uh, Catholic Imagination Conference, anything else we want to draw attention to?
2: Uh, City of Man and Christian Feminist Podcast continue to release episodes. We've also got a recent episode on, was the most recent one a Big Hero 6, Michael? Yes, it was. Featuring uh, the sectarian reviews, Danny Anderson. Uh, very fun episode. I enjoyed listening to it. And speaking of Danny Anderson, of course... He keeps on keeping on. Uh, lately, he's been doing a, a fair number of uh, comic book episodes on the Sectarian Review, which I've enjoyed. So uh, the network remains
0: busy, David. Excellent. Well, uh, go to ChristianHumanist.org and you can sort of scroll up and down the posts that are there and you can see uh, all these episodes that have been mentioned and more. Well, I suppose we should begin in talking about the subject. Uh, what is what is a Tobit? I suppose these days that requires some explanation, as the Tobits are rare and uh, elusive amongst us big folk.
1: Yeah, uh, Tobit is the son of Tobiel, the son of Hananiel, the son of Adjuel, the son of Gabael, the son of Raphael, son of Raguel, of the descendants of Asiel of the tribe of Naphtali, who in the days of King Shalmaneser of the Assyrians was taken into captivity from Thisbe, which is to the south of Kadesh Naphtali in the upper Galilee, above Asher, toward the west and north of Fogar.
0: Okay, so so not a small person with hairy feet, no shire, none of that.
1: Is there a hobbit called Tobit? or oh. <laughs> You're just talking about the...
0: I just find the name funny. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a so, visual
1: rhyme. It's a visual rhyme.
0: Uh, so yeah, this to- is... This is a very low-level joke.
1: I see. Very, very it's still over my head. <laughs> so anyway, Tobit is a guy who uh, lives under the Assyrian captivity sometime around the eighth century B.C. is the probably the easiest way to say that.
0: Cool. Well, the book that he's in, the eponymous Book of Tobit. Um, what is that book's status in the various Christian traditions?
1: Sure. I mean, like like a number of other books we've talked about on this show, um, it's either one of the deuterocanonical books uh, or one of the apocryphal books, depending on what tradition you're in and how your tradition views it. So Catholic uh, Catholic churches, Orthodox churches, some high church, um, high church Protestant denominations see it as deuterocanonical, as useful for teaching, maybe a secondary level from... The rest of Scripture, maybe not. Uh, certainly, it's in the Septuagint Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, but not in the Masoretic text, which is why Protestants don't accept it and Catholic and Orthodox do. Uh, yeah, I, I, is, is there a status beyond that that you know of, David? I mean, I, it's it's a it's a lot like the other deuterocanonical canonical books in that sense. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, uh, just. You know, just being able to say this is a this is a book that different Christian traditions handle differently, and yeah. they they weigh um, its contribution to the faith in different ways, uh, which you know we'll get into as uh, as we go, but just kind of getting that stated at the outset.
1: You know, it, in that it has um, it has some things in common with like the Book of Sirach. Or maybe the additions to Daniel, or or the additions to Esther, the other the other texts that are accepted by some traditions and not others. And mm-hmm. for the most part, even the ones that don't accept it as on the level with the rest of the Hebrew Bible, I think see it as a valuable source for information or for you know spiritual edification, even if it's not um, even if it's not something that's going to get read in your Sunday morning service.
0: Right. Just lateraling to Nathan, would the, would it be fair to say that Tobit is uh, a book that gives us information about ideas that would have been current in Jesus' day and during the period of Second Temple Judaism?
2: Oh, to be sure. I mean, this is a Second Temple book from top to bottom. I'm going to talk about that at more length later. But what's interesting is that uh, in the 16th century, uh, when you know Martin Luther is editing that German Bible. Uh, the book of Tobit is not being used in synagogues, and so it doesn't end up uh, as part of the, uh, what would that be, proto-canon rather than mm-hmm. the deuterocanon. Um, mm-hmm. But what's interesting and what complicates it and what you know, listeners know I love a, a glorious complication uh, is that with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, they found Hebrew and Aramaic versions of this text in there. So there was a time when there were Hebrew and Aramaic versions of Tobit. uh, But, you know, in that gap uh, and, you know, most importantly for Bible publication in that 16th century part of the gap, uh, it only existed in Greek manuscripts. And so, uh, you know, those people who were making decisions about where to place which books in the Bible, uh, you know, said, well, I mean, this is uh, one of those, uh, you know, Greek books. Not one of the Hebrew books, not one of the Aramaic books, and so we will put it uh, in the Apocrypha. But it might have been more complicated than that in the olden days. Do you
1: ever preach on Tobit, Nathan?
2: I have not yet, um, but honestly, uh, because I, I generally adhere to the Revised Common Lectionary, um, you know, it's rare even for Ben Sirah to appear there. I really don't remember Tobit appearing in any of those readings, but that's a discipline that I try to hold to whenever, when I preached regularly several years ago, but also now when I fill pulpit, I try not to go to my favorite passages. And the, the device that I use to keep me from doing that is the Revised Common Lectionary.
1: You know, I first discovered the existence of Tobit when I was reading... A book called Peculiar Treasures by the recently deceased, I mean, recently deceased as I'm speaking, not as I was reading, recently deceased Frederick Beekner. Ah, has, yes, yes. He has, has a book called Peculiar Treasures, which is these little, like, humorous, light encyclopedia articles about various Bible characters. And uh, lo and behold, you come across Raphael and Tobit, and it said the book of Tobit. And I, good Southern Baptist that I was, said, who the hell? Is that? <laughs> I had no idea that that book even existed. I was probably seventeen or eighteen before I even knew that the Book of Tobit was a thing, and much older than that when I first read it.
0: I had heard about uh, the uh, the, Deuter- the Deuterocanonical or Apocryphal um, extra chapters of Daniel, but that was through the route of uh, dragon references. So I I wouldn't have picked up on Tobit, I guess. Well, considering uh, how Tobit places itself in relationship to the canon, uh, Tobit 2.12 says that now this trial the Lord had permitted to happen to him, our, our hero Tobit, that an example might be given to a posterity of his patience, as also of holy Job. So how is Tobit, Comparable to Job, uh, both I guess as a character and and as a narrative, does it would that would that make Tobit wisdom literature? How 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 do you how do you parse that that connection, Nathan?
2: Yeah, uh, it is a second temple flavor of wisdom literature. So in the older wisdom literature books, your your proverbs, your Job, um, what you get is something that is you know historically speaking. Uh, broadly broadly Egyptian-flavored, uh, you know, there are wisdom books that very greatly resemble um, a lot of the passages in the book of Proverbs, uh, and also, I mean, you know, there are narratives of sort of uh, people from nowhere in Egyptian literature uh, that, you know, are there to teach certain kinds of lessons about life in the world. Uh, when you get to the Second Temple period, especially in the book of ben Sirah, that, Egyptian wisdom tradition, uh, that of course, you know, Israel inherits and, you know, turns as Israel tends to do to the worship of the God who brought them out of Egypt rather than the gods of the nations. Uh, but in that second temple period, it becomes merged with what I would call Torah piety. Uh, so in other words, the content of wisdom is no longer something that is hidden deep underground metaphorically speaking, like you see in Job 28, but instead it is something that is a function of and a product of the, st- the study of Torah. So if you look through Ben Sirah, uh, you know, that merger between uh, studying the books of Moses and divine wisdom is always there. And I think that plays out in the very interesting geographic particularity of Tobit. So, I mean, Job comes from the land of Uz, and, you know, except for the most, I'm going to say foolhardy, confident Bible editors, everyone pretty much grants that the land of Uz is a fictional place, uh, or at the very least at a, a name that means roughly somewhere, <laughs> uh, you know, parts unknown if you're an old school wrestling fan, um, but, but Tobit, I mean, you know, he is situated, as Michael just read, in a very particular bloodline, in a very particular place. Uh, he is situated in the Assyrian exile, which is something that definitely comes across in narratives, in the books of kings. Uh, and, you know, the book ends with uh, the fall of Nineveh. And, you know, that is an event that is, you know, absolutely something uh, historically traceable. Now, one interesting thing about this historical situation, and you know, um, I'd be happy for you two to correct me if I just miss this, uh, but the book pretty consistently seems to jump straight from the Assyrians to the Medes, and there's no mention of that grand evil empire in between. Uh, and by that, I mean, of course, Babylon, uh, which you know is is a fascinating you know datum about the book. You know, my sense of it is. Um, you know, you don't want the uh, Babylonians coming to the rescue because they're the bad guys. So we just jump straight to the Medes who let, you know, Israel go back to the land and rebuild but the the Medes
1: temple. didn't even do that, right? It was the
2: Persians who... Uh, yeah, it was the Persians and the Medes, kind of. Yeah. No, I mean, you're right. I
1: mean, um, <laughs> I mean, Cyrus the Great is king of both. Yes, yes. It's weird. You right. never hear about the Medes in ancient literature, though. It's always the Persians.
2: Right, 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 right. I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Um, Now, the other thing that that is notable about this is that, you know, especially chapter 13 towards the end of this book is a what I would call a more conventional uh, Torah wisdom piety than what you're going to find in Job. So, you know, David asked, you know, how does this relate to Job? One thing about it is that Tobit, when he sings, sings more like Elihu than he does sing like Job. So, I mean, it's something that is more in line with what I would call the main stream of, uh, of piety uh, in the Hebrew Bible and less like sort of those border cases that you see in Koheleth, Ecclesiastes, uh, or in the book of Job. So, uh, And then, you know, one thing that I, that I did jot down while I was reading, just because uh, I knew I'd be talking with Michael about this, one of the signs of Tobit's righteousness is that he keeps a Daniel diet and eats his vegetables.
1: <laughs> I noticed that too. <laughs> yep. That's well. Check that's how you're marks. supposed to act in exile. That's right. When
2: when you are in exile, eat your vegetables. <laughs>
1: Do you, so are, are the three of us comfortable saying this is a novel? That this is just fiction, and it's kind of self evidently fiction.
2: Um, I would say that. I mean, probably kind of like the narratives in the first six chapters of Daniel. You've probably got elements. I mean, especially the geographic references that are definitely historical, and I think you've got, you know, a character whose development we couldn't possibly know from records from the 8th century B.C., so I think the character gets invented probably in the 3rd or the 2nd century B.C., Uh, but I think that, you know, the context, if you will, uh, reads fairly authentically, you know, 8th century, 7th century B.C.,
1: Sure, like so, a histori- so I, like a historical novel.
2: Yeah, yeah, so I saw so I, you know as usual I want to cross my fingers on that.
1: Sure. Well, I I just wonder because it almost seems in some places like it's a parody of Job. All these terrible things happen to Job. <laughs> what happens to Tobit? A pigeon takes a dump in his eye and he's blind. <laughs> Like, they, yeah, there's yeah. no way that's not supposed to be a little bit funny, right? It's it's like a, a kind of gallows humor that this guy who does everything right, well, he doesn't lose his whole family and a tornado doesn't carry off all his property, but a pigeon does take a dump at his eye.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I have a really hard time imagining that nobody laughed at that. Right. Right, In right. the first century. Yeah. Well, and,
1: then, and then the cure, of course, boiling a fish's gallbladder and pouring that in.
2: Right, right, right. And, yeah, I mean, you know, that that's something that uh, is a fascinating mm-hmm. bridge, I think, between Job, where, you know, I mean, his family gathers around to fix everything that God broke, and <laughs> the New Testament, where Jesus is doing, you know, very material things like making spit mud and putting it in people's eyes. And restoring the fun of the gallbladder. I mean it's a it's a it's a (laughs) great
1: bridge text in that respect, right? Right, right. I mean I'm inclined to think Job is a novel. So I I don't have any problem at all saying Tobit is, which is I mean that's not a that's not an insult, but it would it would mark it as something closer to wisdom literature than to the, the history literature that it's sometimes treated as.
2: Right. Yeah, I'm, I, and yeah, I, I think I'm basically on that page, Michael.
0: Yeah the the use of the use of extended parable for the purpose of wisdom um, sounds I I, th- I think that may, that makes more sense of this text. Do you think? Do you, right, think,
1: right. Do, do you think the I, pretty clear? Well, no, because the the reason it's not in Protestant Bibles is because it's not Masoretic. I, I just wonder if or if, or it
2: wasn't used in synagogues in the 16th century.
1: Right. So I, so I, I just wonder if the, um, if the kind of self-evident fictionality of the book is one reason why, um, why Protestant churches reject it, but no, I mean, because it's, it's not a rejection book by book. It's a rejection based on, as you say, whether they were reading it in synagogues in the sixteenth century. I remember. And I mean,
2: and if that were the case, I mean, you know, Job would be a far better candidate for that
0: because Job happens nowhere, right? Now, something I would be interested to know, I know know that Jerome comments on particular books as being represented or not being represented in the Hebrew text that he has access to in his own day. Um, I haven't actually traced this down because you all just made me think about it, but I, I would be interested to see if in... The records we have of Jerome talking about his, on his work that became the Vulgate, if he ever says anything about Tobit and the texts, uh, if he says anything about that at all, I would be interested to know.
2: Yeah, that would be interesting. And and one other question that I didn't have time to research before the episode is, you know, what the kind of scholarly consensus is on those Aramaic and Hebrew Tobits from the you know Qumran scrolls. Uh, do people think that these are translations from the Greek into Hebrew and Aramaic, or do they consider mm. them proto-texts and then the Greek to be a translation of the Hebrew? I think either of those is possible, uh, but I don't know. I mean, you know, obviously people have spent lifetimes working on the Dead Sea Scrolls. I took one course in seminary, so I, uh, <laughs> that's not mm-hmm. a question I've got an answer to either, David. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, but, I just looked up the Jerome thing, David. Um, This is from the Harvard Theological Review, an article by Edmund L. Gallagher called Why Did Jerome Translate Tobit and Judith? Now, I don't have a university anymore, so I don't have access to the whole article, but here's what the uh, extract says. Um, By choosing the Hebrew text of the Old Testament as his base text, Jerome directly challenged the traditional position of the Septuagint within the church. The unpopularity of this move in some circles compelled Jerome repeatedly to justify his adherence to the Hebrew text. Similarly, in his preface to Samuel and Kings, he famously advocated the Hebrew canon as the Christian Old Testament and relegated all of their books to the Apocrypha. As part of this latter category, Jerome named six books outside the Jewish canon that were finding acceptance as fully canonical in some quarters and would much later receive the label deuterocanonical, these books being Tobit, Judith, Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, and one and two Maccabees.
0: So okay. it actually okay. sounds
1: like Jerome might be closer to the Protestant position
0: interesting well it's the it it just it's once again reinforcing what you'd said earlier nathan which is that it's it's always complicated oh absolutely (laughs) and the attempt to uh, the attempt to scrape off the complication of this generation by just going back a generation just opens up the can of worms that were that generation's complications
2: sure sure
0: well Let's get into uh, just the content of Tobit, because regardless of the status of this book historically, it was most definitely influential. Uh, So Michael, one of Tobit's good deeds is burying the dead, uh, which is also one of Western Christendom's uh, corporal acts of uh, works of mercy. Uh, In fact, uh, and my understanding is that Tobit is the main authority for burying the dead being considered a virtuous or, or meritorious act. So uh, how does Tobit show us what is good about burying the dead?
1: Right. So um, the corporal works of mercy, the first six of them come from Matthew 25, where Jesus goes through and says to the Lord, to the sheep, you did these things for me, even though you didn't know you were doing them, feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty, clothing the naked, sheltering the homeless, visiting the sick and the imprisoned. The seventh one, as you note, comes mostly from the book of Tobit. And I think of those seven, it's the one that feels most foreign to us, um, if only because we have a very sanitized burial practice right like um when the time comes for me to be buried it will be done by a professional after i've been stuffed full of formaldehyde and whatever else right like nobody else is going to bury me in all likelihood unless something goes terribly wrong with society in the meantime so that seventh one burying the dead does feel foreign to us but if you think about the time when it was added which is the middle ages uh, a time when plague was running through europe and people didn't want to go near dead bodies because they didn't know what they would catch from them. And there was, there weren't these, um, these social services that would bury the bodies for you and make them sanitary before they did it. Or if you think back to the ancient world where those things also didn't exist, it becomes much clearer why um, burying them, burying the dead is a corporal work of mercy. This is, this is something you can do that will demonstrate the dignity of the person who has died. And if you don't do it, well, heck, Nobody might, you know, so. In the book of Tobit in particular, it's one of the first things we learn about Tobit himself. He says, in the days of Shalmaneser, I performed many acts of charity to my kindred, those of my tribe. I would give my food to the hungry and my clothing to the naked. Very familiar to us. And if I saw the dead body of any of my people thrown out behind the wall of Nineveh, I would bury it. I also buried any whom King Sennacherib put to death when he came fleeing from Judea in those days of judgment that the king of heaven executed upon him because of his blasphemy. For in his anger, he put to death many Israelites, but I would secretly remove the bodies and bury them, which I I find this very fascinating, because it's not just a matter of a corporal work of mercy. This is also an act of political rebellion. Um, in, In burying these dead bodies, he is silently protesting a state that has very little concern for him and his countrymen. And in that sense, you might think of an even older text. Uh, I guess it's not even older, maybe. It's certainly set later. I don't that, know when. That,
2: yeah, the, yeah, this text probably is composed after the one you're thinking of. right? Because I'm reading your mind right, right now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So if you, if you <laughs> yeah. think
1: about Antigone, which is, you're right, uh, composed earlier but set later. Um you can see how how burying the dead can be a political statement as well as an act of mercy as well as just kind of a duty that you have to do and in fact the Jewish people have traditionally considered burying the dead a mitzvah a command given by God so um right. You know, it's it's not the sexiest thing you can do to resist your evil empire that's trying to it's killing you all, but it is a, a totally necessary thing to do, and it's kind of wild to me that it took until the Middle Ages for them to add it to the list of corporal works of mercy. Uh, except that the Middle Ages was just a time when this would be really particularly important.
2: And I'm just going to quibble with one point there, Michael. Yeah, let's quibble uh, because in Antigone. Um, Tiresias is still alive and he is dead by the time of Odysseus in the Odyssey and so actually Antigone would be set earlier than Tobit
1: oh well fair enough excuse me
0: well, I mean, that...
2: <laughs> sorry, sorry for that <laughs> syllogism, listeners, but uh, it occurred to me, and if I didn't say it now, I'd be uh,
0: that's right, yeah, saying
2: so it in my sleep.
0: <laughs> so we'll say we'll
1: say twelve hundred BC for the Trojan War, right? Yeah, so you're right; it's, yeah, uh, yeah, it's yeah. some four hundred years earlier than Tobit.
0: Wicked old.
2: Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And it's interesting too, because I mean, there are references once again to very particular historical events. Uh, that are mentioned not only in First Kings, or 2 Kings 19, pardon me, but also in, you know, Herodotus, right? I mean, you know, this failed invasion of Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, I mean, that, that Antigone dynamic is definitely there because this failed war turns into the wrath of the evil king and the act of resistance against, against that evil king is burying the dead. Now, I mean, I, you know... I, I think that it's a very different dynamic, like Michael so put it so well just now, uh, in the ages of plague, uh, in the Middle Ages. But I mean, you know, uh, in the literary setting of Tobit, uh, it's it's very much like Antigone.
0: Yeah, yeah, because it's it's ex, it's explicitly against, you know, the 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 king's attempt to not only kill those who are his enemies but to humiliate them in their death by leaving them to be exposed right so right it's, a, right. it's, uh, it's that's really that's tight exactly. parallel
2: yeah so i mean that's something you see not only in sophocles but also in homer with the mm-hmm. corpse of hector right so i mean yes i mean it, it, it's a again a fascinating dynamic you know mapped onto this mm-hmm. you know this assyrian
1: empire that gives way immediately to the median empire I mean, yeah, it's, guess, it's interesting how that. I mean, maybe it, maybe it still it must still happen in parts of the world where there there there's truly widespread violence. But you don't think of that as being a thing that happens so much anymore. We're not going to let you. We're not going to let you bury your dead according to your rituals. But I guess I guess it still does happen.
2: Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, you know, that was one of the early crimes of the Ukrainian invasion was that you know when, and I can't remember w- whether it was. Um, I can't remember which city it was, but I mean, you know, when, um, Ukrainian forces retook the city, uh, the Russian military had not buried the dead, the Ukrainian dead specifically.
0: Yeah. Uh, Referring back to something you mentioned earlier, uh, why the, the six corporal acts of mercy were so sort of readily formulated and then how much later, uh, Burial comes in. I mean, it does help when you've got like one nice tidy verse for the. Sin. That's true. That's true. Um, but on the other hand, I think that we can even see in the New Testament that this is uh, that this is a value of Second Temple Judaism. I would I would say that Joseph of Arimathea is doing the Tobit thing um, in taking the body of our Lord and uh, interring it with respect um right and the same dynamics there david i I, i'm
2: i'm kicking myself for not thinking about that because i mean crucifixion is precisely desecrating the bodies of insurgents
0: yeah yeah and and that he would be one of the uh one of the religious leaders one of the 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 leaders of the pious in the land um and none of the rest of them considered this the thing worth doing. Like that, the, there's just so much hatred directed at this, you know, messianic upstart. Uh, that only only this one, uh, well, he and Nicodemus consider uh, retrieving Christ's body as a as a thing worth doing.
2: And and also just to get Heideggerian for a moment, it's not something that one does at a crucifixion. Again, I mean, when the regime's primary aim is to intimidate the local population by desecrating the dead, uh, I mean, if you ask, can I have the corpse to bury according to the local rights, that could get you killed like it almost got Tobit killed.
0: Yeah, potentially. And, and,
2: and did get Antigone killed.
0: <laughs> True enough. Buried alive. Um, That's yeah. right, Poe. You like burial so much? Why don't you bury it it didn't work brutal well tobit also has a big uh, maybe disproportionate considering like this is just one very small book uh influence on later christian ideas about angels and demons so not only angels and demons but even the names so what links do raphael and Asmodeus have to other canonical angels and demons and what new things do they add into the mix nathan
2: well once again this is a bridge text and i love this for being a bridge text because you don't get a whole lot of what i'm going to call disembodied spirits in the old testament uh you know you get uh you know the uh the and i always use the wrong hebrew word here so i'm going to say the the seraphim around the throne of God in Isaiah six, although it might be cherubim because I always flip the two, um, you know, you get the, you know, the creatures with, you know, the the four uh, wheeled creatures at the beginning of e- Ezekiel. Uh, but then, you know, I mean, if you don't have the book of Tobit to be a bridge, once again, uh, you land in the new Testament where there are there just unclean spirits around every corner. And they don't have bodies of their own, but they possess other people's bodies, and sometimes they cause illness, sometimes they possess people's minds. Uh, you know, it, it seems like, you know, just a radical shift if you don't have this as a bridge. So, I mean, Asmodeus, uh, who, by the way, I mean, just has a much cooler name than Beelzebub, Lucifer, or Satan, I'm just going to go ahead and say
1: it. Um, he is no mere... It definitely sounds like a heavy metal band.
2: Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, he's no mere tempter, uh, the way that, you know, Diabolos in the wilderness is in the early chapters of uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, but actually kills men. Uh, this disembodied critter uh, has the capability to end people's lives. Uh, and likewise, you know, this, uh, I guess the the way to ward off Asmodeus, uh, you know, bears a lot more similarity to, uh, you know, the exorcisms of Jesus than it does to anything in the Old Testament. You know, once again, it's a very material process, but it's a process in which God is working through the material act uh, in order to ward off Asmodeus uh, when Tobias, you know, uh, marries Sarah, right? Uh, Now, that's the Asmodeus side, and that is, you know, just phenomenally Uh, interesting. Then you get Raphael, uh, who is, you know, someone who is, seems to be a a literary descendant of Michael from the book of Daniel. Um, But he comes not mainly to give comfort to to Tobias and Tobit, uh, but to test them. And in that way, I mean, you know, he he reminds me almost of the gods visiting Cato and Portia. Uh, You know, will the righteous humans when they don't know that they are in the presence of divinity, still do what is right. Uh, and of course, I mean, you know, you get sayings about that uh, in the new Testament as well, you know, uh, you know, for how many of us have entertained angels in their underwear or something like that. Anyway, I've been I think, waiting two weeks to make that joke. I'm sorry. Anyway, isn't
0: there a song about that?
2: I think so. I think so. But, Uh, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, fascinating moments, you know, with Raphael as well. Uh, because I mean, he helps Tobias capture the very aggressive Tigris river fish. He teaches him to extract the exorcism materials from it. So it's not one of those things where, you know, as in, you know, uh, Dante, you know, the angel simply shows up, taps the demonic door with his spear and the demonic door blows open. But, There's an education process. Uh, Raphael is teaching Tobias to do certain things. Um, Now, I mean, one really hilarious element of that involving Raphael and Asmodeus, and this will be the last one I mentioned, and then you guys can throw more stuff in because there's a ton of stuff to talk about here, uh, is that when Tobias, you know, very confidently says, you know, uh, I'm going to marry Sarah, we're going to have our honeymoon, and I'm not worried about Asmodeus... Uh, Sarah's father I think But correct me if I get the relationship wrong Raguel prepares a secret Grave for Tobias <laughs> <laughs> But then he, he, he looks in on them on their honeymoon They're both sleeping peacefully So he tells his servants um, Go fill that grave in But don't tell anyone you dug it <laughs> <laughs> See this that, book Has got to be A comedy <laughs> It it, it has elements of comedy undeniably undeniably. So, I mean, Michael, I, I, uh, I, I I just uh, cherry picked my favorite moments. I mean, what other angels and demons moments should our listeners look for in this book?
1: I'm mostly interested in the fact that Raphael is like an official angel in the Catholic Church. There are churches named after him. He has a feast day. He's considered one of the big angels. And and later traditions are going to identify him with the angel that stirs up the water. At Is that Bethesda? Is that the name of the... Yeah, of the Bethsaida
2: pool? or Bethesda, depending on the transliteration.
1: Yeah. But Bethesda was my elementary school. So I always think... Of very it good. Very of good. So, like, it's fascinating to me that this... This book that is novelistic, if not clearly a novel, has an angel that the Catholic Church in its wisdom has decided is actually real. So in addition to being set in a historical era that is more or less accurate, apparently at least the name of the angel is is something that uh, that we believe corresponds to the actual angelic orders. Although, you know, the angel's actions, Raphael lies a lot for an angel, <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
1: <laughs> Which well, might I be know. might be a reason to think of it as, as perhaps not entirely a, a, an accurate depiction of, of this angel. Or, or who knows? Maybe uh, yeah, maybe I mean, these angels know, love you, tricking you people. Do,
2: you do have that, I mean, horrifying moment in 1 Kings 22 where, you know, and a, a spirit sent from God, you know, basically lies to the king of Samaria and gives him the wrong advice so that he'll go kill himself.
1: Right except and the weird thing here is Raphael is lying to the people he's there to help. Yeah. Right, right. It seems like he wouldn't have to do that. I mean, wouldn't wouldn't it have been much more effective if he just come down and said, "Oh, hi, I'm Raphael. I'm an angel."
0: Or or even just been like, "Hello, I'm a stranger in these parts."
2: Well, and that's what makes chapter 12 so weird because I mean, he speaks that proverb that contradicts all the chapters before it. <laughs> That, uh, you know, a king's secret should be hidden, but God's secret should be revealed. It's like, well, what have you been doing for seven chapters then?
0: <laughs> well, yeah, he's been making the reveal dramatic.
1: That's right. Well, to, be, <laughs> to be revealed, they first have to be concealed, Nathan. Uh, yeah. Right, right. Uh-huh. it's
0: uh-huh. <laughs> Right. It makes chapter 12 the prestige, you know.
2: And, Look, a, and also a, a notable literary irony is that uh, he teaches Tobias to uh, exercise and ward off demons with fish. And then later on, he becomes a turtle.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, huh um so Raphael. Uh, speaking of you know turtles and their famous consumption of pizza um Raphael also eats sort of kinda but then at the uh, in the in the last chapter when he kind of like rips his mask off scooby-doo style it's like i've been an angel the whole time um or maybe that's mis- uh, uh, mission impossible um he, he also tells Tobias, oh, and by the way, those times when I ate with you, that was an illusion, right? The, this uh, apparently the, the, the notions of angels have developed since Genesis when angels uh, eat with Abraham and eat with uh, his nephew Lot in Sodom. and uh, some, And some, also make giant
2: babies depending on how you render just well,
0: right right but somewhere, somewhere between then and when tobit is written uh angels have uh ceased to be thought of as as uh i, I either capable of these corporate uh, corporeal things or at least that those corporal things uh, corporeal things are, are beneath the dignity of the angels who kept their holy estate. Whereas Asmodeus. Like definitely wants to get with that one girl.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: He's an incubus. So you know. Uh, also Milton. It's not just. You yes. Know, yeah. M- Milton has Raphael. Coming and talking to Adam and Eve. And eating with them. And then proceeding to give a long.
1: Metaphysical.
0: Long boring metaphysical spiel. About how what he's doing is is totally appropriate but very different from what humans do. Um, I, I can't help but think that Milton was just so concerned about that eating-not-eating eating problem in Tobit that he just had to hair off on that bit for way longer than anyone cares about. I like that the idea that angels don't
1: have to eat, but they want to because they enjoy it. It's like Jesus, when, he, yeah. when, he, when he's resurrected, he eats that fish. Mm-hmm. I always like the idea that he just eats the fish because fish tastes good. Yeah, He would miss it. He's like, I love this stuff. It's he loves human culture. Yeah.
2: I, I, but, I, I, but if, if he it. missed fish, then would the glorified son of man lack things?
1: <laughs> <laughs> he just blew my mind, man. <laughs> and, and
2: and thus a medieval treatise is, is launched. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, Tobit's shaping a lot of stuff here. Uh, also, I think... There's a big contribution from Tobit, Michael, in uh, Tobit shaping at least certainly uh, patristic uh, traditional Christian theology of sex and marriage. Um, So what wisdom for husbands and wives does Tobit uh, offer and how's that wisdom fared in our own time and place?
1: There is a beautiful poem slash prayer that Tobias and Sarah say together on their wedding night. I'll read that. It's from chapter eight. Blessed are you, O God of our ancestors, and blessed is your name in all generations forever. Let the heavens and the whole creation bless you forever. You made Adam, and for him you made your wa- his wife Eve as a helper and support. From the two of them the human race has sprung. You said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Let us make a helper for him like himself. I now am taking this kinswoman of mine, not because of lust, but with sincerity. Grant that she and I may find mercy and that we may grow old together. And it's really a lovely prayer. I believe uh, it's sometimes used in uh, in marriage ceremonies. But I, I like the idea that they are connecting their marriage back to the beginning of the human race. They're, they're setting it up as a kind of continuation on the same spectrum as that initial marriage, just like when people read from the book of Tobit or from whatever in the Bible uh, during their wedding ceremonies today, they're, they're trying to connect their marriage back to this ancient institution. I love Grant that we may grow old together, uh, which is, is, a, is a sentiment I think we all have, but in our youth-obsessed culture, I'm not sure you're going to hear very many people express the desire to grow old together. I like the idea that Sarah and Tobias, like this wedding has stakes beyond just the future of this family. The fact that Sarah has already lost six husbands before this, to this horrifying demon. And so marrying each other is a real act of faith, which is, I I think probably always true for everyone, right? There's this sense in which, you know, horrible things could happen, but you hold your breath and you, you make the commitment anyway. Uh, Yeah. So, I I mean, I, I, I think it's actually, it's a, it's a slight portrayal of marriage. It's not a, um, it's not an extended treatise or anything like that, but I think as a metaphor, as a, as a kind of parable for what marriage is, you could do a lot worse than Tobias and Sarah.
0: Yeah. I, I love, uh, even the, the introduction of Tobias to, uh, to sarah when even before he's met her uh raphael in the guise of this you know uh kinsman of his you know the angels cover identity uh raphael describes sarah as uh one who is uh eligible um one that he is actually has a right to marry as kind of the next of kin because of the 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 jewish laws about inheritance remaining within kind of the sort of that broader the broader family within the tribe uh the girl's also beautiful and sensible says raphael and and tobias first question is um what about that whole all the husbands dying thing uh and Raphael says, oh, "Don't worry about that. We could take care of that. The, the, the fish can handle that." And when Tobias, <laughs> and when Tobias, trust the fish. Yes, and when Tobias heard these things, he fell in love with her and yearned deeply for her. So <laughs> after Raphael is like, "Yeah, don't, the, the fish can handle Asmodeus. Um <laughs> But it's not. Am with I us? going to die? We have fish. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. So, but uh, I love the, he hasn't even met her yet and he's fallen in love with her and yearns deeply for her. But even that has a kind of, um, a parabolic wisdom literature sort of import in here in which, um, union with the beloved, whether or not that is appropriate really does depend a lot on the intentions of the lover and the, and the, and the sort of love that is had right because sarah has an incredibly intense lover you know a very dedicated and loyal lover who's care- killed seven people <laughs> to keep her for himself
1: um, ladies find a man who looks at you like as looks at sarah
0: <laughs> yeah but that's the, the, a the next thing. christian humanist bumper sticker <laughs> Yeah, but that but that's represented as a bad thing, right? It's you know Tobias doesn't, and, and rightly so. We should note. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, so, we, we we're not in favor of uh, of demons killing people to uh, rape their spouses.
0: Yeah, yes. We're, again we're again it. It. <laughs> So I, I I feel like there's an image there of on one side there's this uh you know unhealthy, perverse, against the natural order for marriage kind of affection. And then on the other side, there is this uh, rightly ordered. um, uh, Lawful positive beneficial. uh, Form of affection, and so so that Tobias and Sarah are modeling that and not the other.
2: I do want to bring up kind of the dark side of marriage in Tobit, though, because, I mean, in a few places, chapter four is the most prominent. uh, You do get Tobit entering into that ongoing dispute in post-exilic Israel about foreign women. And, Uh, uh, you know, famously or infamously, you know, the book of Ezra uh, has Ezra telling the men of Israel to cast away not only their foreign wives, but also their children. Mm. Uh, and, you know, Israel doing so And, you know, I mean This the, this is where, I mean, you know You can have conversations about, you know When you want to date things And when you want to What text you want to put in conversation with you, with each other But that's where I see the book of Ruth saying If you don't have foreign women You don't get King David So, <laughs> you know, um, you know yeah. Tobit yeah. definitely weighs in on the Ezra side Of that mm. dispute, right? I mean, you know Uh, to marry foreign women, uh, according to Tobit, is to commit adultery. And so, or no, fornication, fornication, pardon me. So, I mean, it's not even that any marriage was there to be broken up. It's just that apparent marriage isn't actually marriage. It is fornication. So, you know, I, I, but before, you know, I, I think we can hold both of those realities in our minds, and we should when we read this. But I do want to hold both of those realities in our minds.
0: Right, right. Well, we've covered the points in Tobit that I saw uh, as having really interesting connections with uh, some pretty pretty important topics and the way they developed and uh, especially uh, church history and church uh, Christian theology later on. Um, but what are some other threads from Tobit that might connect it to other scriptures, other traditions, uh, Jewish or Christian. Nathan?
2: A couple quick hits. Uh, One of them in chapter four, uh, you might have heard if you took an intro to Bible class uh, in college or if you've had a particularly good Sunday school teacher that uh, Jesus's uh, iteration of the golden rule is a variation on an older version. Uh, Jesus, of course, is uh, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Uh, and you know, you might have heard that there's a negative version of that—that that, uh, what you find hateful, do not do unto others. Uh, well, that's Tobit, chapter four, verse fifteen. Uh, so that doesn't have to remain in obscurity; it's it's right there in the book of Tobit. The other thing that I, I really found compelling and fascinating at the end of Tobit uh, is this universalist vision that that definitely seems inspired by the book of Isaiah, uh, in which you know, I mean, this very Domestic tale of you know the head of a family Tobit, uh, his son and daughter in law Tobias and Sarah, their grandchildren and so on and so forth, culminates in this vision in which because they remained faithful in their exile, uh, there is a hope emerging that they that a day will come when all of the nations will come back to Jerusalem uh, in order to learn righteousness, and you know like I said I mean you know. Uh, I've got to think that you know this is Isaiah's influence showing up here. Uh, but what Isaiah doesn't do nearly as much is to connect that to the small and to the domestic and to the local. And I really think it's a beautiful vision there at the end of Tobit. So, Michael, what do you got, man?
1: Uh, this is small and kind of strange, but there is a Marian devotion called Mary Untire of Knots, which is exactly what it sounds like. Um, but there is—it's it, based on this painting from the early 18th century by uh, by a German painter, I believe, named Johann Georg Melchior Schmittner. And wow. in this painting, where Mary is untying knots, Tobit and Raphael appear down at the bottom of the painting. And I'm, I'm, as far as I can tell, nobody's quite sure why they're there, what what they have to do with Mary <laughs> untying knots. But uh, I really love it. So uh, Mary Untire of Knots. And then I also wanted to mention that uh, a longtime listener to our show, Joel Miller, has a podcast called Bad Books of the Bible, where he goes through the DeRoe canonical books with uh, with a friend of his. And they have several episodes on Tobit that are well worth listening to. So our listeners who who are interested in hearing more about Tobit ought to go listen to that. Bad Books of the Bible.
0: Excellent. Well, in in case you wondered, dear listeners, at the very end, uh, <laughs> Tobit dies and gets uh, a magnificent funeral, and then uh, Tobias's father-in-law and mother-in-law die, and they also get magnificent funerals. So, if if you wondered, the 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 burial theme continues right up until practically the last verse.
2: And then the empire of Nineveh gives way directly to the empire of the medians giving Babylon a miss entirely <laughs> at, at, at which so many people had to say, take that Babylon.
0: <laughs> you don't even exist. Excellent. Well, that was today's episodes. Uh, today's episode, dear listeners, uh, we have poked around uh, in Tobit a bit. Uh, go read it. It's a, um, I, I, I think I would call it a, a, a a a charming, a a pleasing little book, uh, with uh, edifying wisdom in it. Especially when Tobit is giving Tobias his Polonius-style, um, you know, things to do while you're traveling, advice, uh, but also uh, some fun parts too. What are we doing next week, gentlemen?
2: Well, next week we're going to be looking at a uh, recent piece in uh, First Things by poet Dana Joya called uh, Christianity and Poetry.
1: Uh, Nathan, I listened to Joya's podcast interview about that piece as I was driving home to record this episode. Oh, wonderful,
2: wonderful. That's great. Uh, But as listeners might remember, uh, when I was a first-year graduate student at the University of of Georgia, uh, Dana Joya visited a poetry class I was taking, and I was immediately smitten with him, and I've been uh, kind of following his writing, ever since so uh, when i saw that he had a piece in first things this month i said that's
1: what we shall talk about do you know where else you can see dana joya at the catholic imagination conference with other <laughs> catholic intellectual <laughs> luminaries
0: there you <laughs> go and me surprising well there listener that's all the episode we've got for you today uh if you would like to hear more from the Christian Humanist podcast, uh, you can go to christianhumanist.org. That's where the show notes for this episode are going to post after it drops. Uh, we'd love to hear from you in the comments. If you'd like to email us, you can send it to this, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter, um, all, all three of us, uh, if I remember rightly, in various ways. Uh, not well, me. I,
1: I am Whoops. not on Twitter either. I, I got so off. one of the three of us okay. is on Twitter. I got off of Twitter <laughs> last year.
0: And I got out too. And years you'll have ago. to guess which one. Well, but the the <laughs> networks on Twitter, right? Yes, indeed. <laughs> I'm what not sure that?
1: anybody updates the Twitter account, but yes.
0: <laughs> well, okay. What well, what is it? I don't remember. Ch Radio Network. Well, there you go.
1: Ooh, in stereo.
0: Ooh. All right. Well, very cool.
1: Psychedelic man.
0: <laughs> well, dear listeners, uh, we we wish you all grand weeks and. Uh, We'll leave you with words of Martin Luther to let your sin be strong and let your faith be stronger.